Good morning. I hope you've had a good week. I'm sorry I wasn't with you last week. I heard Pastor Tyler's sermon and it was great. I was en route from uh, North Carolina uh, last Saturday. I was to officiate at a wedding in North Carolina and uh, on the top of a mountain. But I had double pneumonia, and so that makes it very difficult to have a sermon uh, or have preach a, a message or have a wedding on the top of a mountain. But thankful, I don't know, I shouldn't say thankfully, because, because this wasn't the plan. The, the roads were closed because of snow in North Carolina and going to the top of the mountain. So no one got married at the top. Uh, but but they did get married. We ended up marrying them in a, in the at the reception hall, and everything was good. And so everything was good except my double pneumonia. All right, but I'm recovering, doing great. Got back here, went to my doctor on on Monday, and sure enough, double pneumonia. And so he said the antibiotic they gave me in North Carolina wasn't strong enough, so they were going to have to give me some other antibiotics and a couple of shots. And I said okay. And the girl, the, the, the nurse came in to, to give me my shots and I'm unrolling unro- up my sleeve and she said, oh honey, they're not going in your arm. <laughs> That's when I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> Almost as bad trouble as me not being able to get this thing to work, but that's all right. We've been in a sermon series called Itty Bitty. It's, it's this week and next week of the last two uh, sermons regarding that. And, and it's been taking the suffix I-T-Y and using that as the context for our discussion about King David. And so we've looked at words like potentiality and integrity and eterni- or, uh, 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 community. Last week, Pastor Tyler preached on opportunity. Today, we're talking about generosity. And we're going to find ourselves at the very last book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 24. Now, 2 Samuel 24 is a very interesting uh, story. It's a kind of a strange story. Um, in fact, uh, you don't hear too many sermons preached from 2 Samuel 24, the last book in 2 Samuel. You would expect, because, you know, we've been at David's story was told in 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 the first Samuel about midway through and all of second Samuel and it'll go on into first and second Kings but you would think if the entire book of second Samuel is about King David and now he's old that the book would conclude with something like you know and and David rode off into the sunset and and maybe have some some cool music behind it and maybe he's riding a white horse and he kicks it up and says hi ho silver let's go and that'd be the end that's what you would expect after a whole book and a half about David. But that's not the way 2 Samuel 24 goes. In fact, 2 Samuel 24 tells us of a sin that David committed. Now, the sin is not, uh, it's not another affair like he had. We talked about that in the purity sermon, that he, like he had with Bathsheba. There's no lies, no cover-up, no, no, no affair, no murder, nothing like that. You know, I think we would, we would say that was a really, really bad sin. If, you, if we would cat- categorize sins, and I'm not sure that God does, but if we were to do that, do that just for the sake of argument, we would say that that was a very, very bad sin. And the sin that happens, happens in, in first, or 2 Samuel 24, there's no murder, there's no cover-up, there's no, there's no affair. It's not, it's, no, David is counting. That's it, counting. You know, one, two, three, four, counting. That's, that, that's it. He was cunning, and God's not happy about it. Not happy at all. In fact, God is so unhappy about it that he, he sends a plague on the people of Israel because of that. 
I told you, this isn't a good story. This isn't a Sunday school story. Now, now remember when David participated in the sin with Bathsheba, that was a terrible sin. We just said it. Bad, bad, bad sin. You can't get much worse. Cover up lies, murder, affair. Terrible. And through all of that, God never once uh, 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 sent a plague to the people. There were consequences for, for David's sin, but it was mostly consequences that David and Bathsheba had to play. It wasn't, it wasn't against the whole nation, but here, David's counting, taking a census, and God is so upset that, that, that he, he, he sends a plague. A bunch of people die. What's the deal? What's, what's the problem with counting? Our ushers count every single week. They're not particularly sinful. In fact, most of them love Jesus, I think. They don't, they don't shake you down when they're passing the plates, you know. If you put in a quarter, they don't say, hey, put in more, buddy. They don't do that. They're nice people. So what's the problem, what's the problem with counting? Now, again, you won't hear too many sermons on this passage. And it isn't a great uh, Sunday school story. And quite honestly, it doesn't make God look very good. And I think that's why a lot of pastors, uh, preachers don't preach from this passage because it seems like God is harsh and maybe even irrational. It doesn't seem like the punishment fits the crime. They're counting people and, and, he, and he sends a plague. So a lot of times preachers will just skip this story. And like in 2 Samuel 23. Or, or, or if, they, if they preach on it, they make excuses for God. And I don't, I don't know, maybe I'm still naive about this, but I don't think God needs us making excuses for him. He doesn't need us to, to explain on his behalf. Bob Goff this week tweeted out this, and I, I think it was absolutely true. God doesn't owe us an explanation every time he does something we don't understand yet. God doesn't owe us an explanation every time he does something we don't understand yet. I believe that's true. God doesn't always fit into our cookie-cutter mold. I, I think that's the point. God's God, we're not. And so, so part of the definition of God <coughs> is that his ways are higher than our ways. And, and, and we don't have it all figured out. And if anybody ever tells you that they have got all figured out, run the opposite way because we don't have it all figured out. He is God, we're not. He's sovereign, we're not. He's almighty, we're not. He is always good, we aren't always good. He is always loving, we aren't always loving. He always has a plan. Sometimes we wonder about that. So by the very, very fact that we're humans and not God, sometimes there's gonna be points where we scratch our heads and say, well, I don't really understand that. And yet we can say, like David said in Psalm uh, 86, but you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Now, now that's what I know. God is good. God is love. We can trust him. We can, we can, we can, we can trust him with everything. So having said that, I kind of think I understand what's going on here in 2 Samuel 24. And what's happening is David has taken a radical departure a radical faith departure from where he's been his entire life. Up until now, 2 Samuel 24, we've already covered him for a whole book and a half. Up until now, David understood, David maybe understood this better than anybody else on the planet, is that when God is involved, it doesn't matter what the numbers say, what matters is what God says. And so the numbers said, Goliath, nine feet tall in his stocking feet, should have wiped out a little kid with a, with a bag full of stones. But God said, let's see, Goliath, nine feet, stocking feet, and there's a kid, and he's got a slingshot, and one, two, three, four, five stones. Yeah, I think that's enough. 
Or remember when, when, the, when the women were, were singing about Saul and David, Saul has killed his thousands, David has killed his ten thousands. It wasn't just David killing those 10,000 Philistines. It was God helping him. And God was like, well, all right, David, you plus me, we can handle whatever comes down the pipe. And that's true for you and me as well. You plus God can handle the, the, the situations, the challenges, the problems that might come your way. You on your own, you might have problems. But you plus God, you can handle it. God has never been about the numbers, you see. He's always been a, a bigger than the numbers Whatever the situation, we can trust him. I told you a friend of mine, um, I've told you about him in the past, a friend, my name, my friend named Ron, who had cancer. Um, he had cancer for 14 years. When he first found out he had cancer, they told him he had six months to live. And, and in that initial meeting, here they, 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 they tell him he has terminal cancer. The doctors came in, said, said we got this bad news. You have ter- terminal cancer. You, you got six months to live. And Ron, very, very faithful, wonderful pastor, said, said, well, Doc, I understand what the numbers say, and I understand what the odds are, but my God is bigger than the number, and he's greater than the odds. And so, and, and so that's how Ron lived. Now, now, Ron lived 14 years, 14 years instead of six. Eventually, the cancer got him. But they gave him six months. He lived 14 years. I can't tell you how many, 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 many people came to know Jesus in those 14 years. See, God is bigger than the numbers. He's greater than the odds. Ron told me that when he got that initial diagnosis from his doctors, on that day, he had a prayer group that met once a month, a group of pastors from the town where he lived in California, and they would get together every month to pray. This prayer meeting was already scheduled. It wasn't a special prayer meeting because of Ron's doctor's appointment. Ron, they didn't even know that Ron was going to the doctor. And so, so the meeting was already planned. So Ron went straight from the doctor's office. You got six months to live to this prayer meeting. And so he went into the prayer meeting and he told the, the pastors there what the doctor said. They just said, I got six months to live. And so they all gathered around him. The first guy got up to pray. And the first, and the first guy, uh, when he's praying, and I, I, I think I've shared this story with you. The first guy, and he's praying, he's, he, he got up and said, prayed something like this. He said, oh Lord, it was sure good knowing Ron. <laughs> I'm not kidding, that's what he prayed. Sure good knowing Ron. Uh, help him for through these next six months. Be with Kathy, his wife. You know, we're, we'll, we'll come alongside her during her loss. <laughs> you know, it's like, that is not the prayer you want pray if you've just been told you got six months to live. Thankfully, the next guy, the next guy got up and, and it was his turn to pray. And that guy full of, I mean, he was a warrior, prayer warrior. And he got up and he simply said, no, 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 this is not what we want. This is not your will. We will, we will not give in to cancer in six months. No, 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 we want you to work a miracle, God. And that's the kind of prayers you want prayed when you're told you've got six months to live. You want, you want people to, to pray that understand that God is bigger than the number. He's greater than the odds. And David has known this his entire life. He's known this. If anybody should have known this, it was David. In fact, in, in Psalm 20, David wrote, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. David is affirming there. You know, it doesn't matter how many horses I got, doesn't matter how many chariots I got, doesn't matter how many soldiers we got, what matters is God. He's known this all along. My security is not in soldiers and chariots and horses. My security is in God Almighty. It's the same with us. You know, our times have changed. My security is not in tanks and missiles. My security is in God Almighty. My security is not in, you know, in 
12 years, I'll be able to collect a social security check. We call that social security. My security will not be in the check. My security is going to be in God Almighty. That's, that's the point. And David has always understood that until now. 2 Samuel 24. And David is doing what he said he would never do. Sometimes people do that. They say they'll never do something and they end up doing it. That's David right here. He's counting those chariots. He's counting those horses. He's counting the soldiers. And as he's doing it, David is... What, what, what is so upsetting to God, David is, is turning the, the holy nation into a bureaucracy where it's programs, not people, prestige, not people, portfolios, not people. God has always been about people and the numbers really never matter. That's why Jesus could tell the story about the, the shepherd that leaves the 99 sheep. That was a bad business decision. He left the 99 sheep. Why? Because there was one sheep still out there. It's, it's people, not numbers, that have always, always, always mattered to God. But David forgot that. So he started counting. One, two, three, four, five, six. And God is upset. Really upset. And, and it doesn't take long for David to realize that he made a big mistake. When you, when you have a plague, when you're the king and there's a plague going on in your nation uh, sent by God, then you know, okay, I've crossed the line. And so David recognizes that he has to have a kind of a prayer meeting and a come to God kind of moment and offer and offer his and seek forgiveness. And so that's the end of 2 Samuel chapter 24. Let me read this passage, Second, beginning with verse 18. On that day, Gad, Gad is a prophet, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad, and when Arana looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out, bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Arana said, why has my, has my Lord the king come to a servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on my people may be stopped. Arana said to David, Lord, let, Lord, let my Lord the king take whatever he pleases him. And offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offerings. Here's threshing sledge and, and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Arana gives all this to the king. Arana also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Arana. Here's the key verse. Remember, our word for the day is generosity. No, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. And David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then the Lord answered prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel stopped. The end, end of chapter, end of story, end of book, end of end. Again, that key verse, focus on generosity. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my burnt offerings that cost me nothing. In other words, I need to feel it when I give. See, this is not the way most people approach generosity. Uh, they'll give if it doesn't cost them much. They'll give if it, doesn't, if it doesn't change their lifestyle in any way. That's why this concept of tithing sends people into a lather. Boy, whenever a preacher mentions it, what, 10%? Are you kidding me? I'm gonna have to change my lifestyle if I was gonna give 10%. And God says, yeah, exactly. That's kind of the whole point. See, see, every time we sacrifice something and honor God with our, with our time, with our treasure, with our talents, it reminds us that we're putting God first in our lives. That, that above all else, 
He's number one. Even our finances, God's number one. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing, is what David said. It's not just David that discovered this truth. The Bible is full of stories, person after person, who are blessed by God, who are noticed by God, who are honored by God because of their generosity. The flip side of that is also true. People who, who because of their greed, turn their back on God. You see, the reason for this is, is the reason is that, that money is often the number one competitor for our heart and for our lives. First Timothy chapter six says this, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. A lot of times people mistake and, and misquote that verse. It, 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 it's not that money is the root of all evil, but that passage says that the love of money is. Money is amoral. Money is not evil. Money can be used for good. Money can be used for evil. It's the love of money, Paul writes. It's the love of money that leads to abuses. It's the love of money that, that gets us in trouble. It's the love of money, to use Paul's words, that pierces us with many kinds of griefs. Jesus said, no servant can serve serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. By the way, that that verse that's up there, you cannot serve both God and money, that's not a misprint. The capital M on money, that's the 1984 version of the NIV. If you were to look at the newer version of the NIV, money is in in the lower case. But in the 1984 version, which I like better because I think that was Jesus' point, is that money is in the uppercase. He's saying you can't have two, 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 two masters. It's either, it's either God or it's money, capital M. What's it going to be in your life? Now, I've known plenty of people who have, who have chosen to have money, capital M, as the God of their life. God wants, I've heard this sermon or these types of sermons preached a couple different ways. One way is it says, you know, God wants you to have money, get more of it. The other version says, God hates money, get rid of it. And I I think there's somewhere in between those two extremes. I don't think that God is upset about people having money and things. What God hates is when money and things have you. That's that's the difference. And Paul is instructing, when he's he's instructing the rich, and before you say, wait a minute, you're, you're talking the wrong crowd, we're not the rich. Uh, you know, and compared to Bill Gates or Elon Musk or, or Jeff Bezos, then yeah, you're not rich. Compared to the rest of the world, we are. And Paul writes this in, in Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is un- so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, our key word, and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as, as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Paul is saying, think about it. You're going to spend a whole lot longer in eternity. That's next week's word, by the way. You're going to spend a whole lot more time in eternity than on this old, old world. And so what are you doing with what you got? That's the big question. What are you doing with what you got? Are we tossing God our leftovers uh, uh, or are we saying, listen, I'm going I'm to take this free sacrifice from Arana. You know, then I don't, it doesn't cost me anything. He's offering me the wood. He's offering me the, the oxen. I got it made here. This is, this is a sweet deal. Or we say, no, I want to be generous with what God has given us. I want to give God my first fruits. This isn't a new issue. This is an old issue. In fact, in, in Malachi's time, that generation was having a very big deal with this issue. 
and their sacrifices. And, 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 and they were, were, were coming to God and offering him sacrifices of lambs that weren't uh, perfect. Remember, the lambs were supposed to be blemish-free and perfect and without fault. But they were saying, wow, that's a really good lamb right here. It's a nice lamb. It's probably, it's probably it's, it's the best lamb in, in the whole flock. Why in the world would I want to sacrifice that? I mean, God is just going to be burned up. Let's get the sick little, you know, runt lamb. God, God won't care. It's just, a, it's going to be burnt up. But God did care. And Malachi 1.8 says this, when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you fa- sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? And the obvious answer is no, absolutely not. Maybe if Malachi were writing today, he'd say, say, oh, you complain and whine about tithing. You know, you toss in five bucks here, five bucks there. Try doing that with the IRS. That's what, that's what Malachi would say. You know, see how they like it. You go and tell the IRS agent, you know, I really didn't feel like paying my taxes this year. See how far that'll get you. That's what Malachi is saying. And the point of all this is, is money, capital M, can get a grip on us and divide our hearts. Remember, we're talking about Generosity. David said, David said, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Jesus had two different encounters with rich guys that were very, very different. The first rich guy comes to Jesus and he asks that age-old question. You remember that story. What do I have to do to have eternal life? Big question, right? And Jesus, through this conversation, eventually tells the guy, well, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. And you remember the story. The Bible says, says, says that the guy walked away sad. Jesus is saying, choose your master. Is it going to be me or is it going to be money? The guy walked away sad. Why did he walk away sad? Because he had a lot of money. He made his choice. He didn't choose generosity. The, the second person that Jesus had, equally rich, it was a very, very different story. The guy wasn't nearly as moral. The first guy, we're told, kept the commandments, did all the, all the commandments. Everybody, everybody loved. He would, he would have been an upstanding citizen, no doubt. Extremely moral. The next guy, the next rich guy, he's not moral at all. In fact, if you would have asked most people in that region at that time, they would have said he was a terrible human being. Awful. His name was, you remember, Zacchaeus. You remember the song Zacchaeus was a wee little boy, a wee little boy was here. Didn't you go to Sunday school? You know that song. And you remember the story then. Zacchaeus, the wee little man, climbed up the sycamore tree because he heard Jesus was coming and he, he climbed up the tree and Jesus was coming through town and Jesus got right underneath that sycamore tree and he looked up and he invited himself to, to Zacchaeus' house for dinner. And do you remember Zacchaeus' response? Remember, his deal with the Roman government was, was he needed to collect the individual tax rate and anything he could get over and above that tax rate was fair game. It was a license to steal. That's why everybody hated him. And that's why he became so rich. And so Jesus stops underneath the tree, looks up, say, hey, Zacchaeus, come to your house. And the onlookers were aghast by that because they thought, what in the world is Jesus doing? Doesn't he know who that guy is? He's the terrible, rotten, horrible uh, uh, tax collector. He's been robbing us for years. And Zacchaeus responds, he was so overwhelmed that, that Jesus would, would, would invite himself to his, his, his house for dinner, that Jesus would include him. Zacchaeus was, was so moved by that that even though Jesus didn't mention one word about money to the rich young ruler he did, sell everything you got, come and follow me. 
to Zacchaeus, the dirty, rotten, stinking tax collector who had oodles of money. He doesn't mention one thing about money, but Zacchaeus comes down from the tree and says, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, he's cheated everybody out of everything. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Unlike the rich young ruler, the old rich tax collector was so hungry for a relationship with Jesus that he was willing to give it all away so that he could be with Jesus. None of that stuff mattered. What matters was that he could be included by Jesus. And do you remember Jesus' response to that old, rich, dirty, rotten, stinking tax collector? Unlike the rich young ruler who walked away sad, the tax collector who had cheated everybody, Jesus said, today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. Jesus encounters two wealthy guys. One made a very, very poor decision, walked away sad. The other one, Zacchaeus, he's still in heaven today, rejoicing over the best financial decision he ever made, the day he decided to give it all away. I guess the question for us is, what about us? David said, I will not sacrifice to the Lord that which costs me nothing. What about you? Are you a giver or a taker? Or maybe I should ask it as Jesus' question. Who's your master, God or money? I read this just this week, that uh, uh, 21% of folks that come to church never give a dime to the church, not one dime. 71% give less than 2% of their income. That's the national average. Some churches probably hit better, some churches worse. It appears that there's a lot of folks, like the rich young ruler, who are comfortable, who are moral, who are nice, but who are not very generous. I wish, we could, I wish we could learn a thing or two from Zacchaeus. I wish we could learn a thing or two from a king who made a terrible mistake. And that is that we would, we would not hoard the blessings of God. We would not just, just become a reservoir where all the blessings of God and we take on them and we hold them as tight as we can. But rather that we would be a river where we just let the blessings of God throw, flow from us and onto others. That's what we need to be. It's thinking of ways in which we can give more, not thinking of ways in which we can necessarily have more. It's saying, I want, I, want to, I want to be the type of person that's known as a giver, not a taker. I want to be the type of person that is known like Zacchaeus, who, who just is so overwhelmed by what Jesus has done for him, just said, I'm going to give and God's going to take care. That's what, I wish, we, I wish we could just learn the gospel of the dollar bill that says, in God we trust. Not in money we trust, not in things we trust, not in stuff we trust, in God we trust. See, that was the problem with David in, in 2 Samuel 24. He, he, he forgot. He started trusting in those soldiers, in the catapults, in the chariots. And God said, no, you, you need to trust in me. Help us to do just that. Help us to not take for granted the blessings you've given us. But help us to be a river to allow those blessings to flow on to others as well. Thank you for what you're doing. Give us a great Thanksgiving, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.